Thank you for the songs that were picked, uh, the scripture that was read. I, when, you, when you study for a message, you have the distinct, uh, more or less, you know where you're going with the message. You know what the word has to say. And so when you hear songs, when you hear a whole service that leads into what you're going to be preaching on, uh, I, I couldn't help but sit back there and just, um, I didn't even feel like, I, I, the, the, the songs were just, uh, and everything, the word, it, it just lifted my spirit immensely. So I want to thank all of you and encourage all of you uh, for singing out and encouraging me and encouraging us all together. As John mentioned, I, I thought he was going to be gone uh, this week. So, you know, I prepared with the intention of not having him here. So I told him this morning, since he was here, if there's anything I say that you're uh, not sure about, just talk to him and uh, he'll clear those things up for me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm so excited about the, the message that, um, that we have today. Uh, the, the text of Scripture that we'll be reading from is incredibly rich with theology, with the doctrine of righteousness. And so without that, uh, I just want to go right into the message here. Let's, let's open our Bibles if you have. Uh, I think it's on the screen behind me, but if it's not, I'm sure you have technology that you can find. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be covering uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Starting off in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because there's a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and I would ask as we hear your word that you would help us to understand your word, help us as we, we listen, help us as we hear, help me as I speak, Father, that you would be here with us today. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the power that we find in it, and we just pray that you would be glorified here this morning. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So the last couple of months, I've been uh, wrestling with a couple realities that we face in our culture. And in facing these, these cultural realities, it drove me to the Word. 
And as I was going through the Word, I was looking for texts that would really fit in with my thoughts on these, these realities I was working through. And I was brought to this passage. Well, upon reading it and doing further study, I realized that this passage didn't really address the culture, cultural issues and realities that I was thinking it had. And so, uh, this morning, I would like to just share with you, as I've studied, what the Lord has taught me to so we're just going to go by verse, pretty much verse by verse, and, and, and exposit here what the Word has to say. So Paul gives, first off, Paul gives three imperatives. <clears throat> now, those three imperatives start with look out. And he gives th- uh, three different objects. He says, look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, in this context, dogs were not thought of of how they are today. Now, uh, we were just at Rob and Amy's house last night, and they showed us their kennels and all their dogs, and Rob showed us all his cool tricks that he does with his dogs, and it was pretty neat. But it's not how that cultural context is. The cultural context, dogs were looked down upon. They ran in packs, feeding on dead flesh garbage, and generally destroying property. They would often viciously prey on weaker animals, and occasionally they would attack humans. In the reader's mind, there was no room for these animals. These were dirty animals. They were avoided. And these were the false teachers that Paul was actually talking about and warning of. And then the second uh, imperative, he says, look out for evildoers. Their activity was bent, and their footsteps were were consistently headed towards evil. These teachers had added to the Jewish traditions, or added the Jewish traditions to part of the salvation that the Gentiles had to, to do. They had expanded the bullseye of the gospel out to include external activity and human effort. Grace was not the only thing that was needed, but circumcision must be added. And in the third imperative, he says, look out for flesh mutilators. Adding to the gospel is bondage. And we could probably all come up with many different religions that add to the gospel. By adding traditions adding different ideologies in addition to the gospel. <clears throat> Over the years, many religions have done this. And, and even other religions, maybe not so much here in America, but have done things to their body, physical harm, in essence to appease their god or their gods. But what an affront to God who sacrificed his son. Enduring the torture of the cross for, sin, for the sin of man, not only were these false teachers adding to the message of the gospel, they were adding a level of physical suffering. In essence, taking away from the sufferings of Christ and thinking that there was, there was need to add further physical suffering that we had to have to be made right before God. 1 Peter 2, 20, verses 24 Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The anguish, the physical suffering, the physical torture that Christ endured on the cross was for our healing, our atonement. To all that are resting in faith in Christ, there is no need to add to salvation. And all those who put their, put their confidence in Christ are set apart. 
And he really gets that. We get that out of verse 3 there. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Those who worship God and glory in Christ are the circumcision. There's not this external activity that has to be done to, or to earn and, and, and be, uh, to have favor before God because confidence cannot come through the flesh. But, in verse 4, Paul changes and he, and he says, But if confidence in the flesh was a thing, Paul turns and lays out his pre-conversion resume. Before Christ, his identity was wrapped up in his heritage, status, discipline, and achievement. And with every qualification that Paul gives of himself, his worth grew. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. These first three, uh, three uh, qualifications that Paul gives are ones that no one can earn. These were born. You were born into these. This was part of his lineage. He was part of a special class, a select few. He was part of the nation that God had chosen in the ages past. In Amos 3, uh, 3.2, you only have I chosen among all families of the earth. This is God talking about the nation of Israel. Think back to all the wondrous ways that God used the nation of Israel. This was Paul's heritage. Not only was he a part of God's chosen people, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. This tribe was the youngest of Israel's or Jacob's sons from his favored wife, Rachel, remember the story? And, and Benjamin, like, even like Joseph, held a special place of prominence, prominence in the heart of Israel. And even when the kingdom split apart from Solomon, so this is after uh, uh, when David and then Solomon came and the, the kingdom split, Benjamin was the only tribe, aside from Judah, that continued to follow the, uh, the divinic uh, lineage established by God. And finally, circumcised the eighth day demonstrates that Paul's family was practicing Judaism. His heritage set Paul apart from many of his day, and yet he doesn't stop there. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul turns at this point away from the things that he was born into and to the things that he accomplished or he had done himself. He wasn't just born into a practicing Jewish home. He himself was pursuing the Hebrew traditions and ceremonies. The phrase Hebrew of the Hebrews signifies his commitment to maintaining his Jewishness. The customs and ceremonies that he would have learned at a young age, he made them his own. He was not a Hebrew simply because of birth or family, but also in his practice. But not only was Paul keeping the traditions of Israel, he, was, uh, he kept the law as a Pharisee. And in this day and age, that was the height of religious dedication. These, were, these men, these Pharisees, were in essence looked at as protectors of the law. And it wasn't just the Pentateuch and the Torah, strict adherence to those, but actually they had added to it. And they had added different laws, different rules, different uh, explanations, and this was the group that Paul was a part of and strict adherence to this. They were widely respected by the Jews, and they were guardians, really 
of the religion of, of the day, uh, of the Jewish religion of, in that day. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Paul's fervor for the Jewish tradition didn't stop with his knowledge, but it extended to his practice. The Jews saw zeal as one of the highest virtues. And, and Paul's zeal led him to persecute what he saw was the biggest threat to, to his Jewish traditions, his Jewish faith, and that was Christ and Christians. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If righteousness could be achieved by keeping the law, Paul was counted among the righteous of his day. In our current vernacular, Paul would have been a guy without a handle. John MacArthur lays this, Paul's credentials out. I thought it was a very helpful manner, and I just want to go over how he lays them out. But circumcised on the eighth day demonstrates uh, ritual. There's a ritual aspect to that. Of the nation of Israel, that Paul was in this select race. Of the tribe of Benjamin, there's a, there's a, um, a ranking that, uh, that he has there. Hebrew of the Hebrew, he maintained traditions. As to the law of Pharisee, he was religious. As to zeal, persecuted of the church, he was sincere. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul, legalistically, was righteous. But then we come to verse 7. At the end of this boast, Paul turns and dumps a proverbial gas can and throws a match to this impressive pile of credentials and accomplishment. Listen to the three things that he says. And I'm gonna, we're going to just go through this verse here. But he says, I counted loss, I count everything as loss, and I count them as rubbish. This list was powerless to save. We are not saved through ritual, race, rank, tradition, religion, sincerity, legalistic righteousness. In, um, I took business as a major in college. And because of my major, I had to take two accounting courses, and they were the worst. But the, the, <laughs> to the accountants here, I, I'm sorry. But there's a, there is a uh, way of accounting really, where you have two different columns. So you have what's called your credits, and you have your debits. And I'm sure I said them on the wrong side. But what Paul had done here, and so even in this accounting uh, illustration, whenever you credit one column, you've got to debit the other or credit or whatever. But there is always a credit column and a debit column. And what what Paul essentially does here is he sets up this list, and this was before Christ. Before Christ, in his credit column, was ritual, was his race, was his rank, was his traditions, was his religion, his sincerity. All of those things were in Paul's credit column. And his column, really, in his day, was full. But after Christ the list got completely swapped. These credits that Paul had once thought of as credits were now debits. And there's a single entry beside each one of these. Ritual, 
that I, uh, that, uh, and he says, I count these things as loss. He's debiting the worthiness of Christ and being found in him. The worthiness of knowing Christ is far, far greater than Paul's ritual, than Paul's race, than Paul's rank or his tradition. And alongside of each one of those debits now that have been swapped, those, that are, those, those things that he had looked to for his righteousness were now worthless to him, were now spiritual liabilities to him. And the credit he had was the worthiness of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. I want to point out the verb tenses of this, this word count, and, and you'll notice that it comes and it appears three times. The first, use, the first time count is used, you'll notice it's used in the past tense. There was a moment in time where Paul counted this as loss. Second time is a present tense. I count everything as loss. And then even in the third, I count them as rubbish, signifying Paul in the past counting, Paul in the present counting, and Paul future counting everything apart from Christ that he had gained was loss. Those things that he had rested on before have never, nor are not presently, nor will ever grant merit before God. And he says he counts them loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The Greek wording in this phrase, surpassing worth, gives the idea of unmeasured worth. There is an incomprehensible value associated with knowing Christ. Nothing compares to this worth. Knowing Christ the word knowing in this original context is, is not a verb, but a form of the noun gnosis, which means to experientially, by personal involvement, know this. This is not a knowledge that is simply a collection of facts and data about Christ, but it's a deep connection to the source of life, Jesus Christ. I want to reference a couple of verses here that kind of further expound on this deep knowledge. John 14, 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And finally, Ephesians 1.17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revel of revelation in the knowledge of Him. There's a depth to this knowledge even. If we refer back to the Old Testament, the Greek Septuagint uh, uses this word of knowledge was a very intimate knowledge. And sometimes even uses a euphemism for, for sexual intercourse. See this several times in the Old Testament. This knowledge is one of transcendence and intimate love. I appreciated this quote from uh, F.B. Meyer on this knowledge. He says, We may know him personally, intimately, face to face. 
Christ does not live in the back centuries nor amid the clouds of heaven. He is near us, with us, compassing our paths in our lying down and acquainted with all our ways. But we cannot know him in this mortal life except through the illumination and teaching of the Holy Spirit. And we must surely know Christ not as a stranger who turns in to visit for the night or as the exalted king of men. There must be the inner knowledge as of those whom he counts his own familiar friends, whom he trusts with his secrets, who eat with him in his, of his own bread To know Christ in the storm of battle, to know him in the valley of shadow, to know him when the solar light radiates our faces and when they are darkened with the disappointment and sorrow. To know the sweetness of his dealings with the bruised reed and smoking flax, to know the tenderness of his sympathy and strength of his right hand. All this involves many varieties of experience on our part, but each of them, like the facets of a diamond, will reflect the prismic beauty of his glory from a new angle. Because of the incredible gain of knowing Christ, Paul affirms his accounting of his personal striving He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Knowing Christ, there is a cost involved. Paul suffers the loss of everything that he formerly looked to for righteousness. It's not an insignificant loss. Paul doesn't just exclaim, here's what I was trusting in. Here's what I'm now trusting in. Here we go. He suffered the loss of all things. God's Spirit, through the work of His Word, will undress us and strip away everything we hold dear. Everything that we look to for our own righteousness must be carved away. To be clothed in Christ's righteousness, we need undressed from position, legalism, tradition, self-reliance, pride, and arrogance. Paul further emphasizes his view of his pre-Christ righteousness as rubbish. It's a pile of manure. It's worthless. And why? In order that I may gain Christ. The superior glories of Christ are worth the loss of all that we hold dear. You cannot have Christ and hold on to your own righteousness. Gaining Christ far outweighs the loss to self. This is a gain of righteousness before God, a gain of sonship, redemption from the bondage of sin, justification before a just God, and access to the presence of God. We are credited with Christ's righteousness. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. This is one of my favorite phrases in Scripture. I have have several, but... The word found in this context has a sense of discovery. It reminds me of other stories in the Scripture. It implies that something was lost. It's a verb of being, be found. You'll notice we're not the searchers. We're the ones that are lost. We're the ones that are found. Listen to to Luke 15. I'm going to just go over, and I'm sure you're thinking of this context. Luke 15, I'm going to highlight the two parables Well, three parables, but I'm going to highlight 
Luke 15. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together with her friends, her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In that same passage at the end, uh, there's the three parables here. The third parable is the parable of the prodigal son. And I won't read the whole parable, but I want to read the, just the very last uh, verse there of that parable. You'll, you'll remember that the, par- the prodigal son comes back to the father. The father embraces him. The older son runs and says, this is not fair. Why are you doing this? And the father responds, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost, and is found. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes from the law. Paul starts this chapter by listing all the ways he once counted himself righteous. But in the end, keeping the law in the power of the flesh will never appease the wrath of God. Galatians 3.10 is clear. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. It is a futile attempt on our part to try to live up to God's standard that He has set for us. Romans 3.23 We're all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Our need is a righteousness that is outside of ourselves that we cannot produce. We find this answer of the righteousness that we need, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Salvation only comes through faith in the work of Christ. In contrast to how the chapter starts with Paul laying out all of the things he held dear and looked to for righteousness, we come to the climax of this section and are led to the truth that righteousness only comes through God. God was the one who ordained the law. The law was what brought us to our knees to recognize that we could not keep it. Only through Christ's righteousness, perfectly fulfilling the law, dying on the cross, being our sacrifice, can we be made righteous before God. Our righteous standing even, listen to that, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This righteousness is a gift from God. Our righteousness standing is is a gift from a gracious God that accepted the sacrifice of His Son On our behalf, no merit of of our own can assuage the just anger of God. 
My only hope, our only hope, your only hope is in the righteousness that God provides. And that righteousness is accepted by faith. Faith. It's the confident assurance and continued rest that Jesus Christ's work in salvation is my only hope. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him he might, we might become the righteousness of God. When God looks at us, He sees Christ. We only have this right standing before God when we rest in faith in the work of Christ on our behalf. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. We're going to go through these next three sections here. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. Um, that I may share in His sufferings, become like Him in His death. And that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And I, I'm pointing those three things out. And I'm going to come back. I'm going to circle back to uh, the importance of these three things. This personal depth. So we're going to, let's dive into that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. This personal, deep, experiential knowledge resurfaces again. So we've talked about knowing Christ, this intimate knowledge. It resurfaces and is expanded upon to include the power of His resurrection. This statement is in contrast to the two realities that we face here. Our bondage to sin and our utter inability to follow God's law. Ephesians 2 is very clear. Verses 1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. If you jump down to verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even while we are, now listen to the language, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have no ability within ourselves to measure up to God's law. We need resurrection power to save us from the bondage and enslavement of sin. Not only do we need this power for salvation, but we also need this same power in, our, in sanctification. For, for I know, Romans, uh, Romans 7, 18 for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have this desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. Even as a believer, our flesh is still very alive. The same power that rose Christ from the dead and saves us from the bondage of our sin, the penalty of our sin, is needed to transform our lives. That I may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. The glory of salvation is now we have an open relationship with God. We now share in the sufferings of Christ. The word share has the same idea, carries the same idea as fellowship. We're partakers. Our salvation does not leave us the same. We now have communion and access to Him. Christ suffered torment, persecution, and rejection, all undeserved. Ultimately, He went to the cross and died. And as believers, we share in His suffering because He suffered for us. Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respects has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ went through life just as us, facing temptations 
as us without sin. He lived the life that we could not and then died the death that we could not. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul closes this section with glory. The phrase that by any means in this section here is not a statement of doubt, my Paul. I know it can sound like that in our, in our current vernacular, but actually in the original text, there was, a, there was a tone and a tenor of humility in Paul's voice that even he says that by any means, he oftentimes referenced himself as one of the least apostles. Contrasting the attitude that he, in his boast in the beginning, all these false, all the false teachers that Paul was talking about in their confidence in the flesh. Paul here comes to the end and recognizes with humility that the resurrection that we as believers will have one day is one of, of, of humility. That God would save any of us is a humbling reality. And we are included in the resurrection as believers, as saints, included in the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 51 through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. You'll notice, and I want to circle back to those three statements Paul says, that I may, uh, that any many means possible I may attain the resurrection. Well, let me go back further here. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means of Possible, I may attain the resurrection. That first, that I may know him, the power of his resurrections, is a, is a direct correlation to our salvation. That I may share of his suffering, becoming like him in his death. There's a direct correlation even to, to fellowshipping in our sanctification. And finally, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, is our final glorification as saints. Since really the beginning of the, the fall, and, and Cain is the first example of this, mankind has sought additions, substitutions for righteousness that God demands. And every time, God has rejected it. Our nature wants to add something to it. We want, we want to partake in, in our salvation in some manner or some fashion. 
But as we continue to unfold the pages of Scripture, we are constantly reminded of this theme, of this narrative. God is building his kingdom by redeeming his people through his means for his glory alone. Redemption can only come through the shed blood of Christ. Righteousness can only be yours and mine through faith in Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul has this quote uh, I thought was helpful. The equation is simple. If God requires perfect righteousness and perfect holiness to survive his perfect judgment, then we are left with a serious problem. Either we rest our hope in our own righteousness, which is altogether inadequate, or we flee to another's righteousness an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own inherently. Inherently, The only place such perfect righteousness can be found is in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. I really have two questions of application. Uh, first is, do you know Christ? Are you known by him? And if you have gone, through, as we've gone through this message, and, and you say, boy, I, I, I don't know him on this experiential level, I'm not resting in faith in him, I would invite you to repent today. God's wrath is nothing to be messed with. And his wrath and anger towards sin and sinners, none of us can stand before. My second question is, what am I, what are you resting in as a believer? Are you trying to add something to it? You look at uh, your, your activity as a standing before God. I would encourage you to rest in what Christ has done. Righteousness. Those righteous robes that we have only come through Christ. It's not a striving that we have. There's nothing that we can bring to the table. That very fact, as, we, as Paul closes that section, that very fact should humble us to the core. That God is angry with sin. And there is nothing I can do. It's only through the work of Christ. It's only through the sacrifice and the payment that he has. And I would invite you today, whether you're a believer who's struggling and wrestling and adding something to it, maybe it's some sort of morality, maybe it's something you do, your occupation, or whatever it is, repent of your sin and trust fully in Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would invite you. Today is the day. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You. We are unworthy, and we are incredibly grateful all at the same time, recognizing that our righteousness is only through Jesus Christ. That our, sanctif- our, our, our salvation can be only through Jesus Christ. The love that you have shown to us 
by saving us from our sin, by, by giving us righteousness, by giving us sonship, by giving us redemption from our sin is something that we will never repay. And we stand before you today. We stand humbly. And Father, I would pray for those here today. I don't know where everyone is, but if there is one here, Father, that does not know you, I pray that you would utterly convict them of their sin. And if those of us that do know you, Father, are trusting in anything other than your finished work, I pray that you would utterly leave us undressed. Father, we need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.